0: Hi everybody, welcome to see memes So for this episode I'm planning a couple of short and relatively independent segments because there are many different things I would like to talk about. You know, every time I end up talking too long already about the first topic on my list and then I have to shift all the remaining points to future episodes, where of course the same problem happens again. So, This time, I will really try to limit the time for each segment. Okay, I have received a response on my last episode on existence from a good old friend of mine. Let's call him by his initials W.S. So actually, we know each other already, wow, since our time in school. And we have discussed philosophy almost every time we met. Anyway, my friend has noted that when I tie my definition of existence so closely to subjective experience, which is what I did in the last episode, then I would have to grant existence even to things like my reflection in a mirror, and to gods and demons, and to hallucinations, and even to unicorns. Well, I'm happy for that comment because it shows again that I must really try to be very precise in what I say, even if this is quite difficult in a more or less improvised podcast. But let me try now to clarify my position a little bit. So for me, as a tentative idealist, everything starts and ends with subjective experience. Our life consists of a sequence of subjective experiences, which appear on our screen of perception. And as Kant has already realized, we can never know for sure what is behind the screen and what causes these perceptions. But nevertheless, we desperately try to make sense of our experiences. And so we develop models. Individually, and collectively models about the reality behind the screen. Some of these models are so deeply rooted in our collective understanding of the world that they prevent us from experiencing any raw primary perceptions anymore. Instead, we see the world, so to say, through our models. When I look around, I automatically see configurations of separate objects. And this partitioning of the raw optical field, this seems completely natural to us. But actually, this is something we superimpose on the raw data. Our way of subdividing the world is probably unique to our human evolution and culture. Animals may see different objects and boundaries, depending on the eco-niche they are living in. Anyway, our subjective experiences are the data that we are given to work with and which we use to refine our models in an ongoing process of inference. So these models are constructions in which we believe to various degrees. And so they should be assigned Bayesian probabilities, which are always smaller than 1 simply because we never can be 100% sure that our models are correct. Maybe our interpretations of the experiences are good enough to survive and good enough to build some technology. But nevertheless, they may be fundamentally wrong or at least incomplete. But the experiences themselves, I would say, are beyond doubt. They just happen. They are the data. They may be already partly corrupted by false interpretations because we see the world through our model lens as always. But they are data nonetheless. Yeah. We have to take them seriously because we have nothing else to work with. Experiences are the true atoms of our subjective life. And therefore I, personally, assign a probability of one to all experiences, no matter how crazy they are. I guess this is the point which I did not make sufficiently clear last time. What appears on my personal screen of perception, that exists with certainty, for me, not necessarily for others, but the big unknown behind the screen, which presumably causes my perception, that is a completely different question. And there can be different competing models for that unknown. And we can believe in these diverse models to different degrees. So in this sense, the reflection of my body in a mirror as a perception, as a mental phenomenon, absolutely exists. So-called hallucinations also exist with probability 1. Maybe they exist only in the minds of the person's who have these hallucinations, but still. And if people experience gods and demons, (laughs) and even unicorns, or even if they claim to interact with these entities on a regular basis, then we should take this serious too, just as experiences. We don't need to ridicule those people or define them as mentally ill too quickly. I think this is a very important point actually, because it is almost certain that we humans experience only a very tiny fraction of what is going on behind our limited screen of perception. Most of this is filtered out for almost all of us. But it is conceivable that some people have slightly different minds for some reason, maybe only. Temporarily, yeah, and by this way they might have access to normally hidden parts of the unknown. And I believe that if a person has suddenly contact with something entirely new, the mind of that person is trying to render this new thing as best as it can. Yeah? And since our culture has no models yet for that new thing there is, yeah, if I may use this desktop metaphor once more, <laughs> there is no icon available that could be used to represent this strange thing on the screen of perception. Yeah? And so the mind is using whatever icon or model fits best. I think something like this is going on when people have absurd encounters with so-called aliens. Yeah. Modern people interpret them as aliens from other parts of the universe or from other times or from other dimensions. A few hundred years back, people had similar encounters and interpreted them as fairies or whatever. So the mind tries desperately to make sense of something completely outside of the normal and so it is using whatever image or icon the local culture is providing. So, in my opinion, such encounters are incredibly valuable data points which could help our human mind to evolve to the next level. If we want to have a future science which explains all possible experiences, then we have to specifically focus even on data points which are outside of the normal spectrum. Okay, I think I have made clear now in which sense I define gods and demons and ghosts and aliens and fairies as existing. I grant them existence as data points with probability 1, but the various interpretations in those I believe to a much smaller degree. Now, let me finish up this segment with a few more remarks. It is possible that certain parts of the unknown can only be perceived by a subset of humans, just like some people can see less colors than others. This is completely okay and normal, even if these differences remain forever. And it is also completely normal, in my view, that different people assign different degrees of belief to the various models and interpretations which are available. We are all updating our beliefs continuously but it is not necessarily the case that we will you know, eventually converge to a single shared truth. If we would all start with similar beliefs and would update our beliefs in the same way and would feed our minds with the same information sources, then we would probably all arrive at the same consensus reality. But The situation is not like that. Our minds and cultures are different from birth already. And in modern times, everybody has access to the full spectrum of possible information channels on the internet. So each of us is free to find his or her own bubble of information, His his or her private information niche to live in, so to say. And we can surround us with like-minded friends. And so our culture is breaking into many subcultures. I know that many see this fragmentation as a problem of our modern society. But I personally like it. I like to create my own reality and to explore it together with a few friends. But this is a topic for another episode. Maybe... We could define a consensus reality as a self-consistent set of things that are believed to exist by a certain group of tightly interacting people. There can be multiple consensus realities existing in parallel. And I don't see a fundamental reason why these distinct consensus realities need to be in war with each other. They can live peacefully on the same planet, provided we do not forcefully mix them together. Each of them is an independent, collective attempt to model the huge unknown world behind the screen of perception. And the members of such a consensus reality, they actually experience the same unknown, through the unique lenses of their accepted models and so different cultures can actually live subjectively in completely different worlds although their experiences are driven by the same unknown. This is why I have defined existence as something observer and context dependent in the last episode. So I admit to my friend W.S. that Mine is a very weak definition of truth, if you want. But this is honestly how I think in the moment. Actually I have received another message already a while ago from a former colleague of mine who is also a physicist and has the same initials as me, CM. He wrote me an email about artificial consciousness. The email was in German and first I thought it will be enough to tell you just the essentials. But now I decided to just copy the text into the Deeple translator and read it for you completely with my own comments in between. Okay, he writes quote Hi Klaus, after a long time I had some time to take a closer look at idealism. Generally I accept meanwhile the analytic idealism as my world view even if mainly because of Occam's razor because this view simply gets along without big presuppositions. End quote. Wow, I have to admit that I have not expected at all he would ever become an idealist. You know, it is even not easy to find any physicists who are willing to take consciousness seriously. But flipping to idealism, that is remarkable. However, you will soon find out that he is not entirely happy with idealism in its present form. He continues, quote, in particular, I still miss some concreteness in this worldview, which one has enough of in materialism, but I think that will come when idealism has established itself, End quote. Yeah, I absolutely agree here. I have expressed my own dissatisfaction about the vagueness of philosophical idealism in my former podcast episodes. So what we need to Desperately is a scientific, quantitative idealism. Of course, we can always continue to do regular science under idealism, but that would be like, metaphorically speaking, like analyzing the correlations between the pixels on the screen of perception or like developing models of a particular computer game. This kind of surface science is totally useful, of course. It helps us to play the game of life at higher and higher levels, with more and more power. But, come on, what we really want is to understand the computer that generates the game, yeah? metaphorically speaking, of course. We want to manipulate it, to change the fundamental rules of the game. And in the end, we want to be able to create our own computer games. And so far, I'm not aware of serious attempts to model universal consciousness on a fundamental level, except the conscious agent network model of Donald Hoffman. As a former reductionist, I love the idea to start with very simple agents that have only a few elementary conscious experiences and actions available, and then to build networks of these simple agents, to generate more complex super-agents. But I think this model is still missing a kind of built-in organizing principle, yeah, which would lead to a self-organization of these more complex networks. To be honest, I have started to doubt that any reductionist model can describe the evolution of unbounded complexity. Yeah. Maybe we need a top-down model instead. And I also don't understand how we can solve the combination problem with the conscious agent model. For example, how can the combination of a few pure tone qualia explain the rich experience of a complex jazz chord? Physically, the sound waves of the individual notes just add up. But subjectively, the chord is experienced as a unit with a completely new character. Anyway, I'm digressing. So back to the email of CM. And I think I will read the entire remaining email now in one block. So this is going to be a little bit longer quote. Quote. One point of Kastrup and also other idealists surprised me though. Namely, that the possibility to create artificial consciousness, for example by an artificial neural network, is always vehemently rejected. I want to present my train of thought here in more detail. Maybe you will find my mistake. Kastrup argues that our consciousness is ultimately a part dissociated from the universal consciousness or mind at large. Within this dissociated part our experiences and impressions take place while the dissociated part appears from the outside like metabolizing life. So the question that arises is, what maintains dissociation from universal consciousness? Kastrup often argues with metabolism here, but I find this too vague. Clearly, without metabolism, the living being dies, and the dissociation dissipates. Consciousness dissipates back into universal consciousness. And also some experiments with consciousness-expanding drugs, seem to support the role of metabolism. Because yes, metabolism in the brain decreases here, even though the subjects have above average experiences. But I find that metabolism is only a proxy or concomitant here. In fMRI recordings, metabolism in the brain ultimately only indicates where a lot of work is being done, where a lot of information processing is taking place. So, you could just as easily say that if information is no longer being processed in the brain, dissociation from universal consciousness dissolves, and under some drugs, information processing is inhibited, which weakens dissociation and allows transpersonal experiences. The point I'm trying to make is this. What if the dissociation that our local consciousness creates ultimately depends only On the type of information processing and not on life or metabolism. We know only of one type of an external experience of a dissociated consciousness, namely that of a nervous system. But in principle there is nothing against that also other systems cause a dissociation from universal consciousness by the same information processing and thus become conscious. A hint to this kind of interpretation can also be found in the dissociative personality disorder discussed by Kastrup. As far as I know, but God knows I'm not an expert here, this kind of disorder can also be triggered by external influences on the brain, like certain poisons and the accompanying change of information processing. The splitting of a local consciousness is thus possible by a change of the information processing visible from the outside. If indeed information processing, or computation, also allows a split from universal consciousness, then this split can in principle be induced in an artificial system. A problem with this argumentation is the somewhat difficult role of information in idealism, since this must be experienced first in order to exist. I think one should not think of Shannon here, but consider information processing more generally as state changes of a consciousness, whether local or in universal consciousness. But I am still thinking about it. End quote. Such a thoughtful email is of course fantastic input for a podcaster, isn't it? So first of all, I really like that CM is also bringing into the discussion the concept of information. Because in one of my recent episodes, I think I have briefly mentioned that information may be an interesting concept to bring idealists and physicalists a little bit closer together. For example. In the Wikipedia article on information, I have found the following sentence quote, The concept of information has different meanings in different contexts. Thus, the concept becomes synonymous to notions of constraint, communication, control, data, form, education, knowledge, meaning, understanding, mental stimuli, pattern, perception proposition, representation, and entropy." Quote. Now, I personally would not have associated information with all of these notions, but definitely we can find in this list both mental stuff, you know, like knowledge, meaning, understanding, mental stimuli or perception, but also physical, more quantitative stuff, like data, pattern, And entropy. Maybe some of you would not immediately associate pattern with physics but actually physics has already moved away a long time ago from this naive notion of matter. Matter is a collection of indestructible atoms which exist continuously and which move around and interact with each other. At least in the case of elementary particles We now have a much more dynamic picture. We see these particles as temporary excitations of quantum fields. They kind of pop in and out of existence. And so they don't have this character of a material substance at all. Now, (laughs) this is highly embarrassing for a physicist to admit, but I actually don't know how to explain the apparent stability of non-elementary particles such as atoms. I guess you can scan with a raster tunneling microscope over the surface of some sample, let's say a crystalline solid, and then you see the regular lattice of the individual atoms. In such an experiment, you can in principle come back to the same atom repeatedly. And it will still be there, or at least there will be some atom at the same position than before. Is it really the same atom? Or are the quarks and gluons and electrons which make up the nucleus and the shell of the atom are these elementary particles replaced with fresh ones every femtosecond? Or is the whole aggregate somehow stabilized by the interactions between these parts? Do the particles exist at all before we measure them? And so we are back at the measurement problem. Anyway, I'm digressing again. I just wanted to say that matter is not seen anymore as a static substance in modern physics, but as a dynamic process on the micro scale, which somehow produces relatively stable patterns on the macro scale. And these dynamic processes on the microscopic scale can be at least approximately described as time-dependent fields of numbers or, in other words, as evolving information. The physical universe is information which evolves over time, according to certain rules. And so information is a good ground for future physics because it is independent from old-fashioned notions of matter. At the same time, the concept of information processing is central to neuroscience. We know that many subjective mental experiences are associated with characteristic patterns of information processing in the brain. So definitely, information is a promising way to bring the mental and the physical closer together. Coming back now to the email of CM. I agree that metabolism is maybe too specific to our own biology and i also agree that information processing could be the really important part here so let's for a minute assume that a dissociated part of universal consciousness when observed from the outside appears on our human screen of perception as a specific type of information processing in this case if we want to artificially dissociate a part of universal consciousness, we don't need to create artificial biological life. Maybe we do not need to create anything like life, we only need to create any physical process which has this specific type of information processing properties, which is characteristic for minds. Thinking of it, this opens up interesting possibilities. Because every time we dream about people, we create separate mini-minds within our own mind, right? And we do this, I guess, without creating new biological beings. Then it could actually be that each of our dream humans has his or her own conscious experiences. But of course, we have direct access only to one of them just like in waking life. So that's nice, but I still find it difficult to wrap my head around what the process of dissociation really means. You know, when I was still working in my old research field of quantum nanostructures, we had this notion of localized and delocalized wave functions. So when you have a crystalline solid, with a perfectly periodic arrangement of atoms, then there are quantum mechanical wave functions in the solid which spread equally over the whole space, like a fog. But as soon as you introduce enough disorder into the solid, for example by displacing some of the atoms or by replacing some of the atoms by atoms of the wrong type, then you get also so-called localized wave functions which look like individual little clouds located at certain spots within this fog, which is still there. So for me, the process of dissociation always reminds me of the localization of wave functions. A small, localized mind is contracting out of mind at large. But how can information processing localize a mind? And how can reduced information processing make this mind more delocalized again. It seems that a constant work is required to prevent the localized mind to expand again. Does it have a natural tendency to expand out, to reconnect with mind at large? If dissociation is an active process in which most parts of mind at large are prevented from interacting with the localized mind, then Isn't this a little bit like a firewall that protects your local PC from certain dangerous things in the internet? This is of course very different from our standard view where information processing in the brain has mainly to do with actively gathering information about the world and then to act on the world in order to keep all body parameters within a healthy range. Let me call this homeostatic information processing, for the time being. If we bring somehow this homeostatic processing to an end, the human stops to gather survival-relevant information and stops to act on the world in a survival-relevant way. And on our screen of perception, this looks as if the human is dead or at least brain dead. And eventually he or she will be biologically dead and the body will decay. But we should not forget that we know only what appears on our screen of perception. We don't know what remains of a dead human behind the screen of perception. There may remain a lot of activity that is not survival relevant and thus invisible to us. Let me use for a moment this this notion of different planes of existence or parallel dimensions. This sounds always terribly woo-woo, but on the other hand, it's definitely useful to have at least some words for parts of the world slash mind of large, which are hidden from us. So when we say the word survival, What we mean is staying within our standard plane of existence, right? And this homeostatic information processing serves to keep us within our standard plane of existence. And it is an active, ongoing process. Now, a funny image pops into my mind. I imagine that each of us, each of us organisms, is like a little airplane. And the airplane tries to stay at a certain altitude, which stands symbolically for our standard plane of existence. But let's say that this is difficult in practice because maybe there are strong random vertical air currents, some drawing us upwards and others downwards. So we have to actively readjust our altitude in an ongoing feedback control loop. And this, of course, stands symbolically for this homeostatic information processing. Eventually, we will run out of control, and our airplane will permanently change to another plane of existence. Our friends, who still remain at the same altitude, will then lose sight of us. And this symbolizes death, of course. Now, in this embarrassingly religious image, Death just means that we change to another altitude. But we may in reality go on flying forever. I hope this is not true. So, I have talked quite long already, and maybe it's better to continue thinking about dissociation in future episodes. It would be perfect if I would get continuous input from some of you so that we can build a philosophy together over time. But before I finish this episode, I think I should replace this childish airplane metaphor by something a little bit less embarrassing. So let's replace the atmosphere through which all these airplanes are traveling by something like the mental state space, the space of all possible contents of consciousness. And Let's replace this specific altitude, where all the human airplanes are flying, by some arbitrary subspace of the total mental state space. So this is the subspace which has been allocated to human minds by evolution. The human subspace. Now, the vertical air currents could represent any kind of interactions of our localized mind with mind at large. Interactions which tend to throw us out of our human subspace. Then the information processing in our brains may have the goal to bring us back to the human subspace whenever random forces or drugs or meditation have carried us to the borders and beyond of the subspace. Okay, I'm satisfied now. This sounds a little bit less embarrassing. In any case, I hope you can draw at least a tiny interesting piece of information out of my long stream of words, which will end now.